The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. February 11th, 2024, The Dangers of Discontentment, Part 3. Well, good morning. Welcome back. Uh, let me go ahead and open us in prayer and we'll get started. Father, thank you for a beautiful day. Thank you for uh, the sunshine and, and the, the blessing that that is for us and the encouragement that that is. The reminder that you're still on your throne. Uh, every weather condition is a reminder that you are sovereign and in control of all things, including this weather that we get. And thank you for these ladies and their desire to learn more about you and, and for this topic of discontentment. I would just ask that you would bless our time together, that it would be uh, beneficial that you'll be pleased by it, that we might uh, study your word faithfully and, and, and extract from it what you would want us to extract this morning. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we started out this journey by acknowledging, and I hope agreeing, that discontentment is rooted in a fundamental failure to trust in and rest in the sovereignty of God. Those are two different concepts, right? Trusting and resting are different things. It's not just about obedience, although that's important, but it's also about trust. It's about trusting God. Contentment has been defined as a satisfaction with God's plans and purposes for your life, even in the midst of difficult things. Discontentment is the opposite of that. It's a dissatisfaction with God's plans and purposes. It's a, it's a disgruntlement with the challenges of life. Anytime we find ourselves in our hearts bucking against the go, you know, kicking against the goads or bucking against whatever is going on in our lives, we are pushing back against what God has brought into our lives, aren't we? And so discontentment is this dissatisfaction with what God is working and doing in your life. We talked about the fact that these challenges, these difficulties that bring on discontentment, they don't need to be major mountains. In fact, I'd submit that discontentment is, is such an insidious problem specifically because it's often or even usually not based on major struggles and trials, but rather on an accumulation of little things, minor irritants, stressors that accumulate over time. And you heard that phrase, that, 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 that phrase, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be kind of surprised and swallowing all of my frustrations with my wife, for example. I can say this because she's not here. She never frustrates me, but it's an illustration, right? And, and then eventually she does one thing. There'll be the sip of the coffee that, that's not quite right, and I'll, I'll sound like a complete jerk by overreacting to that one little thing. And the reality is that was just the one little thing on top of all the other things that I hadn't resolved and taken care of. It's that thorn in the flesh that just won't go away. It starts as a relatively minor thing can become a major sin issue that overwhelms our lives. So I drew the distinction last week with Jerry Bridges' help between obeying God and trusting Him. Can you remember why that distinction matters so much when we talk about discontentment? Why does it matter, the distinction there, or the understanding of the distinction between obeying God and trusting God? Well, you can obey somebody without trusting them. Certainly can, yep. Think about that of the heart. Right. We, we can be in obedience to, to whatever God has called us to do, but, but still not trust and still not have the heart behind it. I would rather my kids went out and washed the cow with enthusiasm than, than, than with, a, with a bad attitude, right? That's, that's a heart issue. Obedience is, is relatively easy for us. We're, we're in the church. We're well taught. We understand God's word. We read God's word. We're in it. Uh, obedience is well-defined for us. We know what's right and what's wrong, for the most part at least. 
And God tells us in his will what he expects of you. You read his word, you know what to do, you talk to the elders if you're struggling with something, or, or whatever, you talk to other women who have wisdom, and, and you have guardrails on your life that are fairly straightforward. Trusting God is that hot issue that you talked about. It's, it's, it's worked out in, a, in an arena that has no boundaries whatsoever. We, we, have, we have no idea how long our adverse circumstances are going to last. We just don't know. We, we're dealing with this difficult thing, and, and we don't know how painful it's going to become. We don't know how long that, that trial is going to take or last. And we get to that point where we start to believe that well, maybe this trial is going to be here forever. Maybe I'm just stuck with this. Trusting him in the adversities of life is very difficult. Obeying him is easy enough. Trusting him is something different. We don't know how long this painful or even slightly painful event or person or, or activity or trial is going to last. This was the Israelites wandering around the wilderness, right? They're wandering around for 40 years. But, but earlier on in that wandering, they get hungry and thirsty. And then these relatively minor things, at least they're minor compared to being in slavery in Egypt, and, and, and the Egyptian army murderously chasing after them. Those are pretty big things, right? You would think. But they're grumbling and complaining about these little things. And, and those little things became mountains in their hearts. They had no idea when the wandering was going to end. All they knew is that they were hungry now and they were thirsty now. And, and that hunger and that thirst wasn't being met or satisfied. And they famously got to the point where they proclaimed to Moses in Exodus 14 that, that, that wouldn't it have been better, they said, to remain slaves in Egypt than to die here in the wilderness? Well, anything's better in their mind than being forced to trust God in the wilderness. Anything's better than that. Again, Numbers 14. All the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. Bunch of babies. I mean, they they wanted to fire Moses and go back to Egypt. To slavery and probable death. That was what they wanted over following Moses around in the wilderness. For Naomi, it was better that Oprah and Ruth go back to their pagan gods. To their homes, to their families, but most importantly to their pagan gods. Chemosh, the, the pagan god of the Moabs, the Moabites. It was better for them to go back to that than to stay with her and, and, and go to the land of Bethlehem where they would be strangers. They would be the sojourners, if you would, in a strange land. Naomi obviously had things backwards, yes. You know, you talk about a childish and whatnot, but... I didn't mean to, it just came out. <laughs> but the thing is, those people lived in a culture where they were told and instructed almost everything to do. Mm-hmm. You know, they hadn't learned to do it on their own. I mean, just the simple thing about having to make the bricks and, you know, be under, um, you know, Pharaoh and his men. They just... They, they didn't learn. They were, they were babes. Mm-hmm. They were. They were babes. They had to be instructed on absolutely everything. Yeah, I'm reading through numbers right now, and it's just one thing after another, after another, after another of instructions that, yeah. that you would think they would figure out, you know, here's the general principle, now, now apply it. But no, they have to have the general principle applied specifically in everything for them. Yeah. And it's just one thing after another. See, the, the Israelites and Naomi and, and others in Scripture were questioning God's provision. But not just his provision, but how he had chosen to provide. Remember, they got tired of the, of the manna, and so you know, they, they got tired of, of God's provision. I can understand why you get tired of eating the same thing every single day over and over again, but to buck against God because of that is something different, right? They're questioning God's provision. 
and how he chose to provide for them. You could be dealing with rebellious children or, or a difficult husband, but God is growing you through difficult things. We know this intellectually, right? We know that God is using all things for our good. We know this because, I know you know this because you're familiar with Scripture. He promises in his word that he's growing you through these things. He's promising that things are going to get hard at some point. But then he also promises by his grace that he's going to help us through them and that he's allowing those things or causing those things to happen for our, for our good. And yet while we're in that trial, we, we start to get, we start to get weary. weary. That's a good word. Weary. Weary is a wonderful word. We get weary and then we get angry and then we get bitter. And then my wife comes in and, and teaches you about bitterness. So. Bless her heart. I'm not allowed to talk about that. Right? That's a good point, though. That's where the importance of fellowship is. That's where the importance of reaching out to somebody right. and saying, like, I am weary of this. Yeah. And making sure that people around you know what the trials are so that they're looking for those signs of weariness. So they can encourage you with truth because, like, that's a great point. Intellectually, we know that. But when hard gets really hard, it's so easy to forget it practically. And, and, and when we forget it practically, what happens? Well, we need people to remind us that truth is truth and speak to our heart and not just our intellect. Yeah. Because we can then fall into rebellion against God, i.e. discontentment, and really flounder. Amen. Yeah. This is why I love Second Corinthians 1, verses 3 and following, where, where Paul says, and, and I know you know this passage, but it's such a sweet passage. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. I can't help you. You can't help each other if you don't know what's going on in your lives. Right? I, I, I think one of the greatest, honestly, one of the, I'm going to say it. I'm, I'm flying off script here, but this is Tara's fault. One, one, of the, one, one, of the, one of the biggest problems I, I think we have in the church, especially churches like ours, is we've, we've demonized or, or vilified, I hope that's the right word, mental health issues. And, 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 and it, that's really sad. It breaks my heart, to be honest. If, if you're struggling with, with anxiety or depression and you feel ashamed to talk about it with somebody who loves you, who knows you, who can help you through it, then, then we've done something horribly wrong as a church. We have not served you well. And if you've gone through that dark season in your life and you've come out the other side and you're, you're, you're whole to the glory of God and you're healthy and you're praising Him, but nobody knows about it, what a waste of a trial. What a waste of suffering. What a, what a waste. We, 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 are, we are just really good at demonizing people who are struggling with these issues. And, and I, I, I find that to be really frustrating. I, I, we need to be more circumspect and, 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 and creating this culture of open... I think we do okay in this church, but we still need to be really working hard to, for transparency. Absolutely. Just told me this morning in a text that doesn't go to our church but knows the church. 
you know, kind of demonizing our church for that very thing. Really? Yeah, mm. say that somebody wanted to come and worship here, but they looked at all the happy faces and all the happy families and felt like they didn't fit in. Yeah. And that's sad. And um, and and I, but I'm going to kind of chastise this person and say, look, you can't just look at a person and assume their life is great. Right. Um, you know, there's a lot of things going on in a lot of people's lives, but you can't see it just looking at them. And so that's why I say to be more transparent. You know, we don't need to come to church every Sunday and look like we have it all together. Because guess what? We don't have it all together. We need to be real. I mean, you don't want to necessarily hang out your dirty laundry, but not act like you're just this prim and proper little Baptist that everything's hunky dory and no problems. But you're, you're not going to fix that by by w- with ashes and sackcloth and wailing as you come into the sanctuary. What you're going to do is you're going to fix that by being in relationship yeah. with uh, with each other, with those people, so that the person sitting next to you, Lisa in this case, feels comfortable. She knows you, she trusts you, she loves you, and, and guess what? This is going on in her heart and her life. And she feels like she can talk to you. Yeah. It doesn't have to be everybody she can talk to, but it, yeah. but it needs to be somebody. Yeah. And, and you need to be in relationships that are, have, have enough depth and quality to make them make them open to accessible for that, right? Yeah. So, and that's that's a that's something that we need to be constantly fighting for. Maureen, did you? You have to be a safe person. Right. Yeah. You have to create that relationship. But kind of what triggered went off of what Tara was saying is the battlefield is in our mind. And if we allow things to just keep rolling around in our mind and we don't speak them out and share them with another person, they magnify. And they become way bigger than they really are. Mm-hmm. And they lose their some of their power when you share it with a trusted, safe person who can walk you through it. And some of that reputation, I think, and I'm sure it's not just this church, comes from people who immediately want to solve somebody's problem instead of listening and asking questions and getting to know them. As soon as somebody says this trigger word or this trigger this, you hear people just start, well, have you tried this? Have you tried that? What about this? What about that? And that's not going to, that's not conducive to being safe and, yeah, you're right. But it takes training because we're problem solvers. (laughs) You know, a good friend that we love comes with a problem. We want to give them all the solutions. Right. Um, And oftentimes without really knowing what the whole story is. There's nothing wrong with giving solutions, right? But but you need to know what the the subtext is and what the backstory is. Men, I'm gonna I'm gonna. For those of you who are married, this isn't gonna be a shock. Men are not good question askers. They just aren't. Women, I think, are naturally way more bent toward that. But men are just not good at it. We're we're not. We, we are, we're just not. So if somebody comes to us, if our wife, if my wife comes to me with an issue, I'm going to give her all these <laughs> solutions and beat her over the head with them. Oh, yeah. Rather than sitting and. One time I said, I'm not going to tell you anything else because you're not listening to me. I don't want you to solve my problem. I just want to share information. And I bet he said something like, I heard every word you said. <laughs> no, he said, that's your problem. <laughs> 
Here's what the Apostle Peter gives us in 1 Peter 5. This is verses 6 and following. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Even in the difficult things, even in the suffering and the pain and the conflict, the fear, God cares for you. If nobody else does, and sometimes it might feel like that, God does. We have that promise. He perfectly cares. He's perfectly good. And he provides as one who cares more than anyone else possibly can. So Peter goes on in verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Notice there's a connection there. He refers to anxiety and affliction, and then he, and then he reminds us that Satan's out there looking for a snack. He's looking for someone to destroy. Do you think those terms are related? Those concepts are related? Of course they are. Of course they are. Anxiety, suffering, Satan looking for a foothold. They're all interconnected. And after you have suffered, he says in verse 10, for a little while, and that little while is compared to an eternity in glory, right? Because it feels like an eternity here sometimes. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, Friend, this promises for you if you're saved. He himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that sweet? That's good. What's that reference again? Uh, that was First Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. It's a sweet promise God is giving to us. He is, he's on our team, if you will. I tell the high schoolers when I'm teaching them, probably too frequently, that, that God... Sorry, but God doesn't have a picture of you on his fridge. He just, he just doesn't. He is not changed by you. He is not, God, our God is immutable. He is, he is eternal. He is glorious. He's not changed by how wonderful you are. I think I used the word spanky. Um, but he is pleased. He can be pleased by you. And he will be pleased by you as a believer in Christ. As, as a redeemed one, a called out one. God will be pleased by you. That's my point. We can rely on him. (laughs) I'm assuming he doesn't need a refrigerator, but... Metaphorically. Metaphorically speaking, yes. God was angry at the Israelites. Not metaphorically, but literally angry at the Israelites. Understandably so. Not just because they didn't believe in him. They did, of course. But because they didn't trust in his power to save them. That was Naomi's problem, too. Psalm 78, Asaph speaks to the Ephraimites. He writes, the Ephraimites, armed with the bow turned back on the day of battle. So they fled their enemies. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. Why did they turn back? Why did they refuse to walk according to God's law? Verse 11, they forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. You know, somebody had once said that when you're in an egregious sin, you're not shaking your fist at God. You're not, you're not declaring your independence of God. You're simply not remembering him. You're forgetting him in the heat of the, of the temptation. This is the same thing. They turned their back. They refused to walk with him because they forgot his works. They had forgotten what they had done, what he had done for them and the amazing wonders that he had shown them. And in verse 21, Asaph gives us the reason that the Lord was angry. He writes, Therefore, when the Lord heard about their rebellious behavior in this case, he was full of wrath. That should kindle 
fear in your hearts even thinking about the possibility of God being full of wrath toward you. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe, verse 22, they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. They didn't trust it. This is a trust issue. Friends, do you trust God during the difficult and painful experiences of life? Do you trust? You know, I get it. You understand academically, intellectually, you understand that God is using all things for the good. We all know Romans 8, 28 and 29, right? Do you trust him during the difficult and painful experiences of life? Can you rest in the knowledge that this hurts? And that's okay. It's okay to confess the pain. God gives us our emotion, right? This hurts, but God is using it for something even bigger than me. Maybe not even me primarily. I, I, I talk to a person fairly frequently about this, going through very difficult things and I remind this person that, that God is using it for glorious things. Maybe things that are much, much bigger than the person that I'm talking to. Maybe much, much bigger than this person. Maybe not even primarily related to this person but maybe something even bigger. Maybe God is preparing this person for a ministry somewhere else where, where, where it can be used for God glory in a way that that could never have been done had they not gone through this pain in the first place right so do we trust God during the difficult and painful experiences of life do you know that God is holding you safe in his arms even now even in the midst of the trauma and the pain he's holding you safe and molding you into the creation that he intended you to be you're a lump of clay that God is molding and he's using these circumstances for that purpose and we forget that don't we we forget that as we're going through the difficult things and we become discontent and then we get angry because God isn't fixing things and then we become bitter toward the people or the stimulus, whatever it is that's causing this in the first place. We ended up last week talking about how painful past sinful experiences can benefit us today. Those memories of painful past experiences can benefit us today. They serve as a warning against future sin, right? I remember what I did that I shouldn't have done, and that's a warning to me that I have, I have the ability you know, to, to do that again. By God's grace, I won't, but I, I have the ability to do so. And they remind us that we're in need of God's redeeming grace every single day. But then we wrestle with the consequences of past sin, don't we? There may be guilt. There may be guilt in our hearts that, that, that is overwhelming. But God may be disciplining us, is disciplining us, if there are consequences for our bad behavior. So how do you think our past could impact our present? Can anyone give a specific, not necessarily your example, but an illustration of how the past could be negatively affecting us today? I just think of the story of Ruth with Naomi being extremely bitter when she was going through the trial with Mm -hmm. her husband and sons and leaving her land and then eventually returning to Bethlehem. But but the good news is, I mean, she was grievous during that, but she did, I believe, learn from that experience to be gracious because of what God did for her ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, bringing her child through Ruth, who was, you know, um, the great-grandmother, I believe, of David. So, um, yeah. So that was 
horrendous for her during the, the time she went through it, but what joy she had, you know, when she realized what actually God was doing and why he was orchestrating the things he did in her life. Yeah, and you look at the end of the book of Ruth, and I think I mentioned this last week, it doesn't end with, with Ruth being the great-grandmother of David. It ends with Naomi being the great-great-grandmother of David. Yeah. That, there's something to that yeah, that's I significant. Yeah, I think better if I said Ruth. But no, you did. Uh, yeah, you did say Naomi, but, but Ruth was the... It ends with Naomi. Yeah. Grandma holding baby in her, hand, in her arms, so, which is really sweet. It was different. Yeah. I think our own sin negatively affects it when we hold accounts of wrong suffered in the past Mm -hmm. because then we put expectations you know if if we see hints of something happening again you know oh here we go again like in our Mm -hmm. own minds Mm -hmm. keeping an account not having appropriate not believing the best about someone else um you know we can walk relationships down a really bad path yep absolutely i i worked with a guy who who was um very sweet man, but many, many years of drug and alcohol abuse uh, with a long-suffering wife who, who loves him dearly, and there are consequences. He's repented of his sin. He was saved after and, and, and the, the drug and alcohol problems went away, just evaporated. I mean, not, a, not an issue anymore. God saved him and, and cleaned up his life instant, effectively instant, instantly. And, uh, but years of abusive behavior toward his family had, had resulted in, in estrangement. His children wouldn't talk to him. His wife was afraid of him. Um, he had repented. He had trusted in the Lord. But there are consequences to his sin, consequences for his sin. And, and you can bet she was kind of on her guard waiting for, waiting for the next hammer to fall. You can, you can be sure of it. Because no matter how, how, how much we trust in the Lord and his forgiveness and, and, and the change in, in our spouse's life in this case, we can, we can bet that you can be sure that you're still going to have that lingering concern, perhaps. It can take many, many, many years to, to overcome that lingering fear, if you will, of, of relapse or, or, uh, um, or something. So. You know, I've also, forgiving someone is something that I have learned to do through God and pray for them constantly. Yeah. Forgiveness is hard, isn't it? Well, <laughs> to do it right. It took a while, but I learned it has healed me to forgive them and pray for them. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Amen. There's another aspect of forgiveness that I've run into with a number of other people in that they recognize that God has forgiven them for whatever this sin is, and yet they're not willing to forgive themselves. That's a real interesting one. And just um, by God's grace, helping them to see that you're playing God. You're saying you know that God forgave you, but yet you're not going to forgive yourself. So that's something that can crop up as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I would. There, there's no biblical category for forgiving yourself. So I, I think, I think they, they are, they're not, they're not in their hearts. Either they're not truly repentant, or, or they're, they're not understanding what God's forgiveness means. They're not understanding that they were beating themselves up. Yeah. So they, they haven't appropriated and, and taken on the promises that God gives us. Yeah. So I think I think talking to them about what God has done in His Son and in His in, in His you know as far as relationally toward you as in, in your sin is is critical to help that person understand God is forgiven. His, his, his the sins are as far as the east is from the west. They're gone. And 
It's easy to forget that, though, isn't it? And, and beat ourselves up. That's a consequence for sin. We're, we're under, we're dealing with the consequences, uh, suffering consequences. Are we doing that because we're under God's condemnation? No, we're not, are we? Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to worry or fear God's condemnation. Ephesians 1.7 says that in Christ we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. It doesn't say the forgiveness of most of our trespasses. It says it's, it's a blanket term. You've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. We've been redeemed in Christ. Jesus paid the price for us and we're no longer under condemnation because of that sacrifice, because of what he did for us. But our, our past sins, certainly if we're unrepentant, but oftentimes, even if we're repentant and turn to the Lord, will frequently have consequences in the present. There's consequences of some kind. So, so we're not under condemnation. What about God's anger? Are we suffering consequences because we're under his wrath? No. no, we're not, are we? Absolutely not. We're not on, as, as children of God. We are not under His wrath. We're no longer children of wrath. First Thessalonians five nine. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What about retribution? Are we are we dealing with punishment or even vengeance from God? No. We're not, right? We're not being punished by Him. The consequences aren't a punishment. Second Thessalonians one eight. In flaming fire, God inflicts vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are we are not under retribution. We're not under God's condemnation. We're not under His wrath. But we are under the hand of His what? His, his discipline, right? We are under the hand of God's discipline. God is showing us His love and, and, he, and he corrects our ungodly behavior with the goal of growing us in Christ-likeness. So what are some consequences, some consequences for past sin that we could experience today? I think there's a practice thing that needs to happen too. If you are a new believer and you, can't, you, know, you're, you are coming from a different perspective, a worldly perspective, and so you're having to grow your perspective in Christ like a full bag, right? So we have... We, don't have, we have the tool bag, but we don't really have access to all those tools because we don't know the the um, the vastness of God's word and the truth in it. And so we have to not only learn to apply it, but we actually have to learn what those tools are to be able to. Um, I can't think of the verse, but the idea that we can actually grab hold about the abundance of those things and to be able to understand. Um, how those things are for us and what we have available to us Mm -hmm. in Christ and so um, I can imagine someone that doesn't have access to all those things not that they can't read but it's a big book Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of teaching even when you read the whole thing um, there's layers right and so there's layers of understanding and so coming alongside someone that needs help in that way to be able to constantly be reminded of that truth so that they can rehearse it to themselves and mm-hmm. begin to teach themselves and um, talk to themselves about God's truth um, so that that is what comes to their mind rather than the lies of the world. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's really good. Do you, you think the thief on the cross understood what sovereign, the word sovereignty meant? Maybe the, no. the Greek version of the word sovereignty. Probably not, right? I mean, he knew that Christ could save him. He had the power to do that because somehow he recognized that Christ was special. Right. Um, but he didn't, have, he didn't understand those theological concepts. He didn't understand you know, substitutionary atonement. He had no idea about all these theological concepts. All he knew is that Jesus could save him. Alistair Begg has this wonderful sermon on that. I don't know if you've heard it. It, it floats around a sermon on social media from time to time. It's called the thief on the cross, and you know, how did you how did you get to heaven? Well, I don't I don't know. I, I have no idea. All I know is that the man on the cross next to me said I could I could I could come. You know, and, and it's really a sweet sweet sermon, a sweet message. We don't need to know. And, and a lot of those experiences that we have in life, those are the things that equip us to understand how to use those tools, right? In that tool bag that you talked about. We don't know. We've got all these tools in our tool bag, but what do we do with them? How do we understand them? And we never will perfectly understand. And if I perfectly understood and appropriated the promises in Scripture about God's sovereignty, then nothing would faze me. Nothing would cause me to lose sleep at night. Nothing would cause me to worry. Nothing would cause me to get angry or discontent or bitter, right? Because I'm resting in God's perfect plan for everything. And here I am getting anxious or nervous or worried or, or, or frustrated. We'll use all those non-biblical terms. Um, angry or bitter. You know, because I'm experiencing a, a failure to truly trust. And that's something that we will wrestle with for the rest of our lives. Lord willing, less and less as we grow in godliness, right? So there are physical consequences for past sin, right? First Corinthians six eighteen: flee from sexual immorality. Each other, every other sin is in a in every other sin in a person commit every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There can be there can be long term or lifelong consequences for sexual immorality, right? Physical consequences. First Corinthians eleven, talk, Paul's talking about the consequences of taking communion in a, in an unworthy manner. Some have become ill. Some even died because of that. Uh, he writes in Galatians 4 that it was because of a bodily ailment that he preached the gospel to the Galatians. And that his condition was a trial to them. Isn't that interesting? His condition was a trial to them. So his suffering was for their benefit. But it was a trial for them. So there can be physical consequences for past sin. There can be legal consequences. If you break the law, I mentioned, I think, last week that I believe, maybe the week before, I think there are probably people in prison for a very long time who are truly believers in Christ, now anyway, because of crimes that they've committed. It can be instructional. Our consequences can be there to instruct us, to teach us something about God or about ourselves. Paul handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan so that they would learn not to blaspheme, 1 Timothy 1. Ananias and Sapphira died in part as God's wrath against them, but also as a lesson to others. Acts 5 says that, the, that great, as a consequence of their death, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard about their faith. It wasn't just for their benefit. Benefits the wrong, grossly wrong word. It wasn't just for they weren't just struck, struck dead for out of out of out because as a consequence, as a punishment, if you will, for sin. Their death was a lesson for those in the church. It could be disciplinary. Proverbs three verse eleven: My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be wary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father of the son in whom he delights could be financial. The Apostle Paul learned to be content even when he was short on cash, Philippians 4.11. He learned, uh, uh, not that I'm speaking of being in need, he said, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. He knew how to be brought low and he knew how to abound. 
So he, he knew what it was like to deal with a loss or, or a, a lack of financial means. There could be professional and ministry challenges. You, you, see, you see stories all too often of, of pastors, of preachers who fall from grace. They, they commit some egregious sin and they've lost their ministries, uh, oftentimes forever, depending on how egregious the sin was. Paul experienced daily pressure because of his concern for the churches. He writes in 2 Corinthians 11 that his constant daily burden of concern for the Corinthian churches was far worse than his occasional physical suffering. Those who were weak in faith or were made to fall caused him intense emotional pain. He was wrestling with, with, with he was agonizing over, he was, he was discontent with the state of the Corinthian church. He was struggling with those things. There are painful memories that we may carry with us. Paul tells his young protege Timothy that he was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But then he points out in 1 Timothy 1.13 that in spite of his wickedness, he had received mercy. And because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed, he said, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And there can be damaged relationships, right? We can damage relationships. Even pre-salvation sin can damage relationships today. And that may be even the most, most frequent of consequences. A lack of trust in, in a relationship. God's discipline and the trials that he brings into our lives may be painful, but they're his very best for us because they grow us in godliness. Peter's unfaithfulness was planned by God so that his faith might grow, so that he'd be useful in ministry. In Luke 22, Jesus tells Simon Peter that Satan had demanded to sift the disciples like wheat, to trouble them, to torment them. But then he goes on in verse 32 to say that I have prayed for you. Imagine that. I have prayed for you, he says, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter's suffering, his trials, his sin, were for a purpose. So we, I think it's the least that pastors that call this glory fillers. And the idea, I remember her teaching on this, hmm. and kind of what you just said that even with Peter, God using his sin. And so that was really helpful to me because just coming from a critical home, um, and just like lots of perfection, uh, perfectionism. Uh, I struggled with God's grace at the beginning of my walk and understanding what that looked like amidst my own works and having to work the gospel out in my life. But understanding that God is so big that He's even bigger than my sin and can use my sin um, really helped. Mm. Kind of what you're mentioning with Peter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he's that big. He can use it for witness. He can all the things that you're explaining. So that was really helpful to me as a young believer, understanding that God could use my sin and that I wasn't um, far away from Him because of my sin. You know, I was just as near to Him, and it helped me really understand the gospel, even in in my sin and what that looked like as a believer, opposed to on the other side of things before I knew Him. <coughs> Isn't that interesting how, how we can, with the best of intentions, and I'm not referring to your home life specifically growing up, but with the best of intentions, we can act a certain way, thinking that it's, that it's biblical, that it's godly, that it, we're doing all the right things, and, and, and as a result of that, cause our children to um, go in a, to, to run in a different direction or, or to not understand something that maybe they should. You know, I, I, I can remember this gal talking about... Um, 
purity culture and how her parents had raised her to believe that, that she should save herself from marriage, and, and which is, of course, appropriate. But the outcome of that, and, I, and I'm not convinced this lady is saved, but the outcome of that is, is she got, went into marriage, and for her, sexual intimacy was a dirty thing. It was a bad thing. That's what her parents had inadvertently taught her. And so she gets into marriage, and the next thing you know, it's, it's she's not able to, to give herself to her husband the way she should have, the way she was called to. And as a result of that, she, she rejected the church and walked away from the church and, and left her husband. And, and so obviously she's not behaving well in that either. But, but her parents were, were trying to teach her what God would hold out for her as, as godly values and standards. And, and she, just, she just completely ran with that the wrong direction. Right? And, and um, it's, it's just interesting how we do that sometimes. We mean well and our kids end up going in a strange direction. God is sovereign over that too, right? It's our filters. Our, our oldest daughter kind of struggled a little bit with that. And um, it's filters. The kids come from the same family. But, you know, you're at different places at different stages in your life as a parent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the kids, we, we filter everything, you know, through our own filters. So sometimes it gets skewed. And unfortunately, um, as parents, we can't really control those filters. We've just got to pray a lot and ask for forgiveness and things we thought, like you said, we were doing right. And for some, it, it backfired. So um, life's very complex. And then we have all the things that are ingrained in us with our own culture, our Western culture, and trying to understand the Bible that was written in an Eastern culture. We, we, we do that with Scripture, too. Sometimes we take the rationalization of man to try to understand Scripture when it was really meant to be very supernatural and we kind of <coughs> took point. Yeah. So... We just don't, we'll never get it all together until we see him face to face. It's just the way it is. Just the way it is. And in, in the meantime, we just need to pray for, for help and, and pray for God's forgiveness and, and ask for forgiveness of our children or whoever it is that we're sinning against. That's absolutely true. Yeah. The, the discipline that we receive, that we endure, is for our good. We know that circumstances can lead to discontentment. The Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron because they had endured protracted difficulties. Their trials gave their hearts opportunity to reveal the sin that was already hidden inside, right? And that's true for all of us as well. Discontentment is a hot issue. It's, not, it's got nothing to do with our environment. It's got nothing to do with our circumstances. It's got nothing to do ultimately with what's going on in our lives that's, that's catalyzing or causing us to feel like we're discontent. Discontentment is a hot problem. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3 that God has put eternity into the hearts of men, but nothing since the fall can bring us complete satisfaction. That's Ecclesiastes 3.11. Nothing can satisfy us but our hearts. We have this yearning for eternity. Nothing can satisfy us. We are prone to discontentment. Discontentment is rooted in a heart that lacks thankfulness. David wrote in Psalm 28, Blessed be the Lord. David has been dealing with a lot of difficult things, and here's what he writes. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield, and him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. Again, in Psalm 119, he says, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. David was a man who knew how to stop and consider how God was working and how to be thankful and to trust in him. 
So we tend to listen to the world. We tend to listen to what the world tells us. Or you can't possibly be happy with whatever it is, with the amount of money you have, with the house that you have, with the car that you're driving. I worked with a guy who was wrestling with an almost compulsive need to compare himself to others. And he always compared himself negatively to others. This person's got a nicer car. They've got a better house. They've got, you know, nicer children or whatever it might have been. Everything, he had this compulsive need to compare himself. And the world told him that he needed these things. And he believed the world. And it was so hard to get through to him that, that the world isn't what you should be listening to. Instead of listening to the voice of God, he was falling to the temptation to listen to the world. But the world deceives us, doesn't it? And as a result, misplaced affections divert us from Christ and onto the things of the world. Luke twelve thirty four, where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Paul exhorts the Colossians to set their minds on the things of God rather than the things of this world. Colossians 3. The Tenth Commandment forbids discontentment, which is defined by the Westminster Shorter Catechism as an inordinate, covetous affection for anything other than Christ. Our inordinate or demanding desire for something other than what God has given us is a sinful coveting for the things of this world. 1 John 2. Do not love the things of this world. Tincelli's writes that our covetousness, which is a fruit of discontentment, betrays the belief that God either cannot help us in our suffering or is not good enough to care about it. That's kind of what I've been harping on this entire time is, is, is that very statement. Either he can't help us or he doesn't care. And so we come to believe that God owes us something. We're back to the sovereign goodness of God issue. When a desire becomes inordinate, it becomes a demand. That demand then turns into a perceived need, which in turn becomes an expectation. And then unmet expectations breed discontentment, which lead to anger. This anger can be directed toward other people. It can be directed toward God. It can be directed toward our circumstances. It's always, however, against God. Discontentment is always rooted in unbelief. We are, in effect, shaking our fists at God, aren't we? For his failure to meet our demands. Luke, where he talks about that, um, anyone who follows me must pick up Matthew. It's in one of the Gospels. Take up the cross. Take up the cross and follow him. Matthew, I think, yeah. And I just keep thinking about the idea that our life is not our own. And he tells them that right there. If you actually want to follow me. Or the man that, um, the Nicodemus, the, where Jesus came to him, he said, what must I do? Mm-hmm. And he said, you, you need to give up everything. And he wasn't willing because he had power and he had money. Oh, he had all those rich rulers. Rich ruler, yeah. He went away sad, you know. Yeah. And so, um, and I've been thinking about that verse, but that helps me with contentment when I think about all the millions of things that I want to do with our property and Yeah, it's really good. Next week we're going to talk about um, the pack up. I'm not done. 
But <laughs> next week we're going to talk about specific uh, what the world will tell you to do about discontentment. Um, what what if you go to a therapist because you're struggling with discontentment? What are they going to tell you to do? Um, we're also going to talk about what biblical counselors should do. What you should do as when your friend tells you that they're discontent, they're wrestling with. They probably won't tell you. I'm discontent. They're probably going to tell you other things like God. I, I just feel like God is 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 uh, not hearing me, or they're just going to talk about whatever's going on in their life that's been ongoing and difficult. They're discontent, and, and they're probably not going to use the word. But we'll talk about what. how do you respond to that? What do you say? But I, I want to end up our time this morning quickly looking at some biblical examples, some of whom we've looked at already briefly. But, but these are examples of discontentment in Scripture that eventually bloomed into anger and even bitterness. Elimelech and, and Naomi, right? They left Beth- Bethlehem for Moab during a great famine. Their choice to flee Bethlehem was an indication of discontentment in their hearts. Famine was commonly identified with God's judgment or disciplinary action at that time. And so when they were going through a famine, it was probably because of God's intended purposes to do so. So fleeing Bethlehem to get out of that famine, that was a direct affront to God's attempts at, or God's purposes, that's a bitter word, God doesn't attempt, he does, God's purposes in, in disciplining Bethlehem, disciplining the Israelites. So fleeing a land of famine could be considered fleeing God's correction, hand of correction. And their sin was compounded by their choice to move to Moab, Israel's arch enemy. If you look at, if you understand the history of the Moabites, just wicked, wicked people. Imagine if you're, why would you leave from the bread basket? Bethlehem is the, the bread, house of bread. From the bread basket, the, 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 the place that God has chosen to bless, why would you leave there and go to Moab of all places? What is wrong with them, you wonder? But that's where they went. Husband dies and sons die, possible consequences for their sin. Naomi chose to leave Moab to return to Bethlehem. Somewhere between Moab and Bethlehem, Naomi shifted from discontentment to anger and she blamed God for her circumstances. From her point of view, God had let her down. It failed her. It failed to give her what she believed she needed. And so he was fundamentally not good, she said, not good and not worthy of her trust. Those are her words. God is not good and not worthy of my trust. These are the words of a bitter heart. Once a faithful leader of the Israelites, King Saul's disobedience and envy of David led to his downfall, didn't it? He coveted David's exalted status amongst the Israelites and became discontent with David's presence in the court, presence in the court and his status amongst the people. And as you know, his discontentment bloomed into a murderous rage against him, a murderous anger. Saul spent much time and energy trying to kill David rather than taking advantage of his military successes, his victories and royal position. Jealousy and hatred ate away at him. And he was determined to destroy the man that God had chosen to replace him. He believed his own soldiers and priests were conspiring against him, 1 Samuel 22. And he murdered hundreds of innocent people in his quest to kill David. After Samuel's death, the Philistine army gathered against Israel. Terrified, Saul entered into even greater sin by seeking the help of spiritists and mediums to guide him. And his anger settled into a bitterness that permeated the rest of his life. What about God's rebuke of Cain? Remember Cain? His sacrifice was unacceptable, and with the rebuke, his countenance fell. That's discontentment, his depression. He subsequently killed his brother, anger, and became bitter as he endured God's discipline upon him. Then there's Esau. Esau, he's, he's, he's unhappy with the Lord's provision for him. He sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for some stew. He was discontent. Later he accused Jacob of stealing his birthright and blessing. 
So, and subsequently he became so bitter toward his brother that he plotted to kill him. Jonah. He wasn't content with God's call in his life to save, to, to reach out to the Ninevites, was he? His anger toward God and the Ninevites grew to bitterness toward God as he lost hope in God's destruction of that pagan nation. And then he was embittered by the withering of the plant. It's, it's funny when you, as you read it in, in Jonah chapter 4. Um, this plant withers and he just, wants to, he just wants to die. Poor man. Paul Tripp makes this wonderful connection between discontentment, anger, and bitterness when he exhorts counselees to recognize, admit, confess, and forsake all patterns of discontentment, anger, and bitterness toward God that result from a view of life that forgets destiny. Anger toward God, he says, reveals a personal agenda that has replaced God. That was known. That was Jonah. Jonah had a personal agenda that had replaced God. Leah and Rachel, they were both discontent, weren't they? Leah deceived Jacob in marriage, and Rachel became embittered toward Leah because of her ability to provide him with offspring. Leah's desire for a husband and Rachel's desire for children became inordinate and thus sinful. Bitterness then can stem from different hot motives. Both women were bitter, but for their own individual reasons. Ed Welch writes that bitterness grows as we come to believe that God has reneged on his promises for a happy life free of suffering. God never promised a happy life, a pain-free life. But we forget that in the heat of our affliction. Bitterness skews the way we view the situation that caused our discontentment and caused our anger in the first place. It affects how we view ourselves, causing us to forget God's kindness and exaggerating our suffering. I think that's key, exaggerating our suffering. James writes in James chapter 3 that if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. It's okay to confess your heart to the Lord. It's okay. But Esau bitterly complained that his brother stole his birthright. Did did his brother steal his birthright? No, he, he, he gave it to him. His brother didn't steal anything from him. He sold his birthright to Jacob. Naomi claimed to to leave Bethlehem full, which is unlikely given that they fled a famine. And then she complained that she'd been brought back empty despite being accompanied by the most wonderful daughter-in-law any woman could ask for. And Ruth. Naomi came to believe that Jehovah had let her down so badly that her daughters-in-law would be just as well off worshiping Chemosh, like I said earlier. Her bitterness transitioned from being an experience to being a defining feature of who she was. Thus the name change from Naomi to Marah. You see how discontentment lies to us? It, it, it makes us exaggerate our suffering and it causes us to forget God's kindness. So... Next up is counseling the discontented person. So that would be a good place to start. Any thoughts? Any concerns? Anybody? Any challenges regarding the people that I, the illustrations that I brought up? I'm really eager to hear if you disagree with me. I would like to hear it. If you, if, you know, with any of those people in Scripture in the Old Testament that struggled with God and, and were discontent with what God had for them. Well, the only thing I would say is Naomi maybe didn't have a choice in terms of leaving. No, you're right. She followed her husband. I leave that to Lenglet. Hmm? You know, that was his choice yep. in their culture. Absolutely. But then there were consequences for their sin. Yeah. And, and then she tries to drive her daughters-in-law back to a pagan land rather than to go back with her to what she knew, who she knew was a sovereign God. Right. But she, you know, I mean, that's the simplified version of it. Right. But also, too, in that culture, it wasn't a real hopeful thing for them to just head on back as Moabite women 
right. and in their culture. Oh, absolutely. Going back as Moabites to Bethlehem wasn't setting those ladies up well no. at all. Absolutely. She, was, she, she wasn't thinking straight either. No, she wasn't. And that's why she said go back, you know, go back to the family. Love that book of Ruth. That's great. See the same thing about Leah. She probably didn't have much choice. Her husband or her yeah. father said, like, this yeah. is what you're going to do. But yeah. there's a difference between, like, what was her heart and what yeah. right came after. Yeah. That's good. All right. Carrie, do you want to close us in prayer? Sure. Holy Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this reminder to be content with the trials and the circumstances of life that you have brought across our path. Lord, we thank you for this teaching. We thank you for Graham and his diligence to prepare to come each week and encourage us to be content, encourage us to rejoice as you command, Lord, and we just thank you for that. Father, I pray for each of our hearts as we process this teaching and as we go upstairs to hear what the pastors have prepared for us, those in worship and in word. And I pray, Father, that we would leave here thinking differently than we walk through the door. Lord, as that mm-hmm. is your will for our time here, would you help us to reach out to one another? Would you help us to be transparent about our trials and our struggles so that we might encourage one another? Um, and Lord, we just uh, ask all of these things in the mighty name of your Son. In his name, amen. Amen. Thank you.